0: I gotta click that somewhere. Thank you, Lynn. Ooh, wow! I'll, I'll hold my head up. I think otherwise it'll be very loud. Thank you. Uh, slide, the title says "The Walk Through Time and Into the Future." I think I will emphasize "Into the, the Future" a bit more than the walk through time, but I'd like to uh, provide a setting. I want to first thank uh, Dr. Miles for setting the stage on the discussion of creation, uh, because that's really where I want to want to start to think to think about this business of energy, and of course. Whenever it was it it was in my mind it's a, it was infinity ago that the uh, universe, the sun, the earth uh, life, uh, as we know it or maybe, maybe don 't actually know it uh, was created and over time, important components of that are things like the dinosaurs to me, the Rocky Mountains are very important. I happen to live in in the rocky mountains and We come to man somewhere along that that time frame. And man found on on this earth a variety of things, including plants, animals, the sun, uh, water, and the wind. And over time, man learned, we being man, uh, learned how to make use of those for their sustainability, uh, sustain life and for other purposes, uh, ultimately for energy. And through such things as domesticating animals, uh, but then uh, developing technology, and then moving forward into what we know as a modern world, which I will not dwell on that part right now. So if I go back to the most fundamental energy form, it's the sun. And early man learned how to use that sun in some very creative ways. I don't know how many of you have been to Mesa Verde National Park in southwestern Colorado. Everybody? Oh, good. Isn't that magnificent? I, that is just one of, I love the national parks, but that's one of my favorites by far. And how did, what, this is essentially passive building design. They built their dwellings in the, the, the recess in the rock. And so, guess what happens? During the summer, the sun is high. The sun doesn't shine and heat it up. Uh, and so, they can stay cool during the winter as the sun is lower in the sky. The sun shines in, warms up the buildings. Of course, they have a lot of thermal mass there. So, they have st- storage overnight. Very clever, these Anasazis. And it's really spectacular. So, so they knew how to use the sun. wonder why we don't. We do to some extent. But we forget about that uh, as we build our houses. OK, well, my slides are out of order somehow. So here we go. I'm going to sk- skip around. But some of the pioneering things uh, in the, the use of the sun uh, came from these three gentlemen. And uh, you may not know who they are, but uh, they are Bell Lab employees. There was a, a chemist, a physicist, and electrical engineer. And how, how's that for a good collaboration? And in 1954, they invented the first solar pe- cell. And so that was the beginning of what we know today as, as, as uh, photovoltaics. Now I'm going to go back. Somehow i got a slide out of order there. If, if you go back to the days of the dinosaurs, of course we know what happened to them, and we understand what, what that led to. It led to this thing we call petroleum, and this is uh, in 1859, uh, Drake's well in Titusville, Pennsylvania, was often considered to be the beginning of the petroleum age in the United States. And we know all of the benefits of that. That's a joke. <laughs> but certainly mobility, the automobile, petroleum uh, is, is a dense fuel, uh, has high de- fuel density, so it's very convenient, it's in liquid form, but it has its problems. I didn't include any slides of the Gulf because I thought you probably had every one of those imbra- embedded in your brain right now. And I don't need to to uh, either erase, for, erase from or detract from that uh, memory. And then wind. Uh, wind has been in our life for a long time. And, and we know that many earlier adventures uh, used the sailboat as a motive force of power. So wind has been in use. Wind has been in use in the Netherlands, for example, also. Uh, We have a horse here who's uh, used for uh, aiding man in in, uh, sustaining life, et cetera. And then uh, on the Midwestern farm, and I grew up in uh, Missouri, as Lynn mentioned, and I grew up on a farm, and we had one of those windmills. And I remember uh, that the most—the thing I remember most about it was when the wind blew really hard, we had to go stow it so it wouldn't de- self-destruct by, by turning too fast and, and getting out of control. But guess what happened to that? We got electricity. You know, Rural Electric Association, you know, cheap electricity, so the windmill went away. And for a long time, the world forgot about how to use wind turbines. So that 's kind of my walk through time, and it will start to progress in uh, a bit into the future, but I will some of it is uh, other than that so you already know this is everybody knows that enorm- energy is an enormous challenge, but it 's very hard to grasp generally what the size uh, the enormity of it not not the chal- the fact that the challenge is enormous, but just an energy enterprise is a huge behemoth it 's you it 's It's a monster, and so trying to move it is like trying to steer a ship with a toothpick. It's a very big challenge, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't take it on. Uh, You know about natural disasters being a problem. We know about trying to manage the environmental impact so that that it's minimized. Uh, Keeping the, particularly both the fuel supply and electric supply secure and uh, reliable. And the one that is perhaps the most disturbing, I won't say much more about it after this, but is you look at the lights across the world, and that's where the energy is currently being used. But all the dark spaces, there's people there. They don't have electricity yet. There's, what, 1.8 to 2 billion people that don't have access to electricity, as we know it, at least. And then, to say nothing, of the population growth, all of which bring more and more demand. So those of us in the energy business can look at it as a big opportunity that's great things to tackle, problems to solve, science and engineering to do, et cetera. This is a little bit of an old slide, but I like using it. Um, if you, it's U.S. dependence on foreign oil, which is one of our big challenges in so many ways. And the U.S. uses 20%, 26% of the world's petroleum. And then all the rest of the countries uh, stack up below that. The countries that have, have oil and, and availability of oil uh, and, the, and the estimated amount is on the left side and the problem, one of the big problems, as you know is there's a, many of those countries don 't really like us at to say the least, and so that 's part of our challenge We need a lot, we, we want a lot of oil, demand a lot, but where it comes from is not all great. Um, I like to, to keep it simple, I want to put energy into two buckets, and uh, energy is a means uh, to an end, and it's not an end in itself, but the real point on this slide is to to move toward – is this sound okay or is it booming? It's okay. Uh, is a sustainable electricity system and a sustainable transportation or fuels. Uh, in, in you, you could think of that as fuels, historically we have, or traditionally, but we'll talk about some alternatives on that. So. What I, I want to spend a lot of my time as we go forward talking about electricity and, and transportation. So U.S. trends. Here's how we use our energy. The bottom, let's, let's read the bottom line first though. Uh, we lose roughly two-thirds of our energy to inefficiencies. So there's the first and big and most important opportunity. Don't, if you, if you have energy, Use it as efficiently as you can. I'll probably bore you with that comment as we go on, but it's, it's really important. And renewables is over there as, at 6% in round numbers of the total contribution to the energy that goes into the three uh, end-use sectors. I think you already know what the renewable options are. What are the renewable sources? The only one that I like to remind people is the biomass, which are the three over on that left side, Biomass can mean many things. It can be waste materials, waste paper, cardboard, sawdust, uh, straw or corn stover, waste wood, demolition wood, uh, crops that you grow intentionally for, for energy, for example. And we'll come back uh, as we go forward onto that. We have made a lot of progress over time. This is the cost reduction curve. Uh, it's, for the most part, about cost because uh, we're accustomed to in, energy being relatively inexpensive, and uh, so we we work, that's where we tend to put all of our effort to improving efficiency, improving performance, lowering manufacturing costs, and improving uh, operational costs, lowering them. And I'll just pick out a couple of these just to give you, so if you can't read it, on the left side is 1980, uh, and on 2015, uh, 2010 is part way over. <laughs> I can't reach, I, can't, I don't have a pointer to get gets me there. But uh, the light blue line is wind. And wind has been reduced by, from, from 1980 by approximately a factor of 10. And that's why today wind is one of the most cost-competitive renewable energy technologies. We're going to come back in more detail on that. And then uh, the photovoltaics, which is the purple line coming down, uh, has has come, has been reduced by about a factor of five. We need another factor of two to get that other factor. Uh, so it's a factor of 10, and it will be a lot more right in the cost competitive range, and we're on a good track to do that. And then there, even though it's still a relatively small part of our overall mix, here's the kind of growth curve we've been on, and that starts over there at 20, 2002, and it, this one over here is 2008. And you can see the biggest growth is blue. That's wind. Uh, the orange is biomass. biomass is a big con- contributor, but it has, hasn 't changed much it 's it's stayed relatively constant over fairly over that period of time and then geothermal's been pretty flat and yes, what have I got oh oh thanks we 'll see if that works I don't know if you can see, I, I can see it, but i don 't know if you can see it oh you can oh well hey good and then photovoltaics is the top one so this is the orange and it's, it's actually, even though it's a small, small piece of the pie, it has grown very nicely. Uh, and then the other part of this, just to summarize uh, the overall contribution to re- from renewables in the United States to the production of energy, you can see gr- biomass remains as a big one, other than uh, hydro, which we, we're schizophrenic about hydro. Sometimes we call it renewables and sometimes we don't. It is really, truly renewable but it's been around so long that it doesn't get put into the category of new renewables. So uh, I, like to, I like to include it because I, I kind of like it for the most part. I'm a rafter though, so I'm a little begrudging of any dam, a river that's been dammed, but that's, that's, that's beside the point. And then uh, wind is, uh, you can see the size there, and then uh, geothermal and, and solar. So let me go on. This is a comparison of relative costs, and I'll go over here to hydro, and the, um, it's shown here as two to five cents a kilowatt hour, is What what the number is on it. And then over here is wind. This one says four to seven. Different folks will, will give slightly different numbers, but four to seven. And then unfortunately, solar is over here. Got a big range on it, so it, uh, and the bottom part isn't uh, all that ugly. But what we need is to get that to slid down a little bit further. And then this one right here is wave power, which we have yet to develop in the United States. We have, we're behind the Europeans, for example, in develop, development of ocean energy from the ocean itself uh, in terms of waves or, or tides, etc. But those are the kind of cost comparisons. So we, we still have work to do. And for those of you in the science business and engineering business of this, why uh, your job's not going to go away, at least it shouldn't. Uh, the states are leading the way in many, many, many ways, individually, state by state by state, uh, leading the federal government and trying to help steer the federal government in the right place. And um, this is a chart, I think I've got every one of them on there, that shows, diff- and, and we won't go into all these details at all, but you, if, you, if you are in any, live in one of those states, I'm sure you know what the inf- what the details are of the renewable portfolio standard. In other words, it requires a certain amount of renewable uh, electricity by a certain date. Many of the states, those that have these yellow dots, require a certain amount of it has to be solar, and then the rest of it can be something else. Many of them, it'll, it'll be particularly in these middle states, in Texas, et cetera, it will be wind, and that's what for the most part, it's being satisfied by, but some of them may resort to other means, by like biomass, et cetera. And I won't go into any details, just to say, I want to make the point that states are leading the charge in this area, and that's very important. Uh, it'd be nice to have a, a National uh, Renewable Portfolio Standard, and maybe we will. I, I'm not making any predictions. Oh, and then this is just the top states. Uh, I probably should have left this off and, and done a quiz, but. It gives the top five in each of these categories, solar PV, biomass, so you can see California, 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 uh, Florida, and the southeast for biomass. This one's geothermal, so it's again, California, uh, Nevada, et cetera. And then this one is concentrating solar power. If you don't know what that is, I'll tell you in a minute. And wind and uh, hydropower. So. Uh, the West Coast has a tendency, and be, and you'll see why in a minute, um, uh, to be uh, leading the development in these areas. Now now I just, I went by fast, but this is world, global. So just, just a few minutes from an overall globe point of view. I don't, I don't want to dwell on it much because I want to focus mostly on the United States. But um, if you go, and this one starts in, uh, when did I say, 2000, yeah, 2000 to 2008, and this is, shows the growth of, of electricity, electricity only, from renewables. And of course, the big growth is in wind. The blue is wind. Little bit of change in biomass, the green on the bottom. And then some, the solar is looking pretty good. Um, I'll ask, uh, time out for a small quiz. What country do you think has the most solar installed? Germany. I heard a lot of Germany's. You're right. Um, I've been to Germany several times and I've never seen the sunshine. (laughs) But it still works. It just doesn't work. It's more, when we get the solar map, I'll try to remind you to look. It's more like the solar intensity of Seattle, for example. And you can do it, it's not necessarily ideal. And then here's here's the countries, and this is really hard to read. The map the map is so muddled. But uh, if you go down here, if I can read, I can read it over here. <laughs> um, the first one over there is uh, small hydrop. Let's skip that one. Wind is the third one over the light blue, and uh, the U.S. is in lead in the lead there, and uh, and then Germany's number two. And then solar, we'll just do a couple of them. So there's solar. There's Germany. There's the number one. That was the quiz I just gave you. And you passed with flying colors. And then uh, Spain is second. Japan's third. And U.S. is fourth on that, if you can't read those. So just to give you an idea of what's going on across the world. So uh, th- this is a, just a slight diversion for a second. Uh, you know, we we uh, we talk about, the development of our, of a smart grid here, and we look at, at what's going on in Germany. This happens to be in Haiti, uh, right after the earthquake, and, and the, the thing I really want to show you is, look at their electric system, their wires up here. <laughs> a work of art, huh? I mean, is there any, any doubt that it's not surprising that, um, an earthquake would, would, Damage of severity, and these, and it turns out these guys uh, in this truck are on their way to to help clean up from the, from the um, from the earthquake. Uh, This was actually, and this and the other photos I'm just about to show you. My, I have a cousin who has spent his time. He's actually retired, but but he went and spent three weeks immediately after, two days after the earthquake. He was in Haiti, helping restore power to some of the hospitals and that sort of thing. And he has some heart wrenching tales about. I can barely see the... Okay, I've got to find the button up here now. I'll probably hit the wrong one. This is Bangladesh. Sim, similar kind of thing, uh, if you look at the electric system. It's not all that bad, but what happens in some of those countries is the value of copper is so high, they will risk their life, climb up the poles, tear these, and, and rip down the infrastructure. So they put it up, it gets torn down, I, you know, so... It's amazing how some of the rest of the world lives. This is in the Sedan. They actually, their power line looks pretty decent. And then this is a cell tower. So they've got cell phone. And they have some reasonable power. But if you go to a little a shop, again, in Sudan, he has one light bulb right here. There's his light bulb. But notice it's a compact fluorescent. So, hey, pretty with it, huh? Okay. So, uh, this is my pitch on energy efficiency. One slide. I just want to make sure that you hear from me that energy efficiency, and even though that's not the topic I'm focusing on, I'm, talking about, I'm focusing on renewable energy, uh, that if you start at the end point, and we, we use energy in building trans- industry and transportation, we always need to use every watt, gallon, whatever it, form it comes, as efficient as we possibly can, and we have a long, long way to go. So uh, we need to focus on that. I, I'm, gonna, I'm going to emphasize the left side over the renewables, but I'm also, we need to be mindful of this middle piece that however we produce energy, there's a delivery, storage, distribution, transmission, uh, tanks, pipes, wires, et cetera, that have to be tended to, and they are part of the entire uh, energy infrastructure that has to be right and in place and functioning efficiently to make the overall system work. So what I'm really going to do now is start out by telling you some things you probably already know. But for just a second, let's remind ourselves of the following. Um, there's two things on here. There's the renewables. So there's solar, uh, ocean, um, uh, that's the biomass hydro and well, all right I'll come back to that in a second and wind. And then that's the amount of energy in some units, uh, which we don't we won't worry about the units, uh, that's produced in one year by these renewables. These things are the traditional natural gas, petroleum, uranium, and coal, and that's the total estimated reserve. Remember, these are, every year, these get generated. So, you, if you look across there, what, for the I'm sorry to, for the wind advocates here, but it really looks like we need to make sure we get into, seriously into the sun, use of the sun. It's the big supply. But that doesn't mean we're not going to have wind. That doesn't mean we're not going to have biomass, by the way. But we do need to seriously develop our solar resource because, we have an enormous quantity of of sun, and the sun is reliable in that sense. We know when it's going to shine. We know when it's not going to shine. Other than in some places where it rains a lot, I guess I, I would moderate my thing, my comments. Uh, here's four maps of where the various resources are in the United States. The solar being there. This is wind. You can see in the middle of the middle of the country. Geothermal tends to be a Western resource. Biomass tends to be upper Midwest, Southeast. And I always like to tell audiences to integrate in your brain uh, what what those might look like. And I decided that was too hard a challenge. So here's, here's a different way to do that. If we start out by just putting up, uh, this is for photo So, And by the way, what did I say about uh, let's, when we get to this one, let's compare, say, the Desert Southwest, New Mexico, Arizona, Texas, um, Washington D.C. is going to be not too bad, but but Seattle and some of the more detailed maps show a. I can't see that. Hmm. Anyhow, you know where Seattle is. Uh, that's about generally. If you think about Seattle, that's about the where uh, the same solar intensity you'll find in Germany, and so they make it work there. All right. The next one is concentrating solar power. Uh, If you don't know what that is, I could say. I'm going to tell you about that in just a few minutes. And then on top of that, we put wind. And then on top of that, we put biomass. And then on top of that, we put uh, geothermal. And then I think I've got hydro on there as well. Yes, Uh, but they're little dots. So now you can see, you know, all across the United States, you can get some, I think you can see that, if you think about the colors. Uh, There's, I typically like to claim and nobody's challenged me totally yet on this that no matter where you are there's likely two at least two renewable resources that are, are viable and then the, the west uh, has many more but the west has a, the, uh, a related challenge and that is water and, and for those kind of technologies where water is essential uh, water may become a, a serious challenge. So so not all is happy in the West, even though they have a lot of good re, uh, renewable sources. And then you lay on that, uh, if you're looking at the, at the electricity part of it, uh, what the grid looks like and where you might have be able to or have to, to link into the grid. So all of those things have to get taken into account as you try to move forward. And then these are similar numbers to uh, what I essentially had on that other chart. Uh, it does All it tells you is that Uh, Of all the renewables in the United States, the potential, theoretical potential uh, for solar is huge. But wind is large. It's 8,000 gigawatts. Do you know how much, what the um, U.S. installed electrical capacity is roughly? About 1,000 gigawatts. Roughly 1,000 gigawatts. So, in principle, we have enough wind to... um, Provide what we got eight times already. Now things like geothermal, the current prognosis uh, would say it's it, it, it's it's not all that much, but there is something called the enhanced geo- geothermal systems, which I, which if I have time at the end I'll talk about. But but solar has 206 times what we current u- currently u- used. Okay, so I'm just reinforcing that point. I'm sure you I'm sure you've got it. Wind, a lot of wind turbines. Wind turbines are, uh, well, by the way, in the United States now, today we have uh, more than 35,000 megawatts. So another way to think about that is a nuclear power plant's is about 1,000 megawatts. So we have an equivalent of about 35 nuclear power plants uh, in the wind that, that's being generated today in the United States. I say, we say six to nine. I think I had four to seven on the previous slide. You know, it's in that ballpark. It depends on where it is, when it was installed, et cetera. And the size of the turbines uh, has, has a lot to do with it. This is the kind of growth curve that we've been on uh, in the world. This is world. Uh, the U.S. is this light blue in here. Did I have that right? Well, North America. I'm wrong. Sorry. Here's We're red. My uh, chart changed on me. Uh, it's this red one. So the U.S. is good, and then uh, the... This is Europe. And the rest of the world, Asia's here, and then the rest of the world's down there. OK, all right. So very rapid growth in, in both of those. I mean, how, You would like to invest in that if you knew uh, a good way to do that, likely, huh? Um, so what are we doing? We are making them bigger, larger, taller, that is. Uh, we are looking toward offshore, which is on the left side. Uh, as these towers get bigger and bigger and bigger, and I'll give you a sense in a minute of what what I mean by bigger and bigger and bigger, they get harder and harder to erect. Uh, how do you take something that big and then tip it up, or do you telescope it, or what? how do you do it? How do you engineer it? Blades, uh, as they get bigger and bigger, bigger longer and longer, longer, they get heavier and heavier and heavier, more expensive and more expensive. So you're trying to make them lighter uh and still maintain the performance uh reliability of the gearboxes and the drivetrain uh, is a challenge and then more accurate weather uh, wind forecasting so you can manage uh, your the total load and uh there's a the move to go offshore uh, certainly in Europe because they're they have less land availability uh, In the United States it's be, it's more of a political or not in my backyard issue than anything at the moment uh but we are uh The door's been opened. I think we'll get there. 70-meter kind of towers we're talking about. And then uh, also I mentioned the reliability problem. So a 70-meter, this is actually an installation in the Irish Sea, so in Europe at 3.6 megawatts. By the way, the typical wind turbines you'll likely see these days is a a 2.5 megawatts. They're moving to three and a half megawatts, so more and more you'll start to see them of that size in, in installations as you drive around this country. But to give you a sense of how big that is, they are big. And if, you, if you've driven by one on the highway as you, went, as you go down the road, uh, you'll be you, you, you will be astounded. Um, I like to look at this as a tower that's the length of a football field, and on top of that tower that's a football field long, there's another football field spinning. It, it, that's the scale. We're, I mean, yeah, and it's a structure. It's been built, and you know, it's steel and carbon and nuts and bolts. And more and more. Uh, I mean, it, it, there, there's, these these are only 3.6. I think the industry is targeting at this point up to ten. So, you can just imagine some of the challenges. So, need some good engineers. And now, wind does everything it can to get an advantage. So, in this, I don't know whether the sisters are praying for them or leaving in disgust. But I have a feeling that it's uh, that they're on the on the side of the wind here. Solar. Let's move on to solar. Um, There are three key ways that you can use solar, uh, that we use it uh, intentionally. And one is solar thermal. In other words, heat. Uh, Rooftop uh, hot water collector, particularly in warmer climates, uh, so you don't have to deal with the freeze problem in the winter. But there are freeze systems, but they tend to be more expensive. So... You know, everybody. Every home in Israel, for example, has a hot water system on. If you've been to Israel, they've, they've all got them on their on the roof, and so it's it's a great way. I'm not going to emphasize that. I'm going to talk about the other two primarily: photovoltaics uh, for both distributed and then centralized, so you can you can agglomerate and have have a large central place and then concentrate solar power, and a well. It's hard to know how much PV is actually installed in the United States because it it goes on people's rooftops, it goes in their backyard, it goes on you know on all kinds of places, and we're estimating uh, somewhere above a thousand megawatts, which is about the equivalent of one nuclear power plant. So it's not an awful lot, but it's it's making a good inroad, and then concentrating solar power, which is about half of that. Uh, so we still don't have an awful lot of. of of that on the ground concentrating solar power i promised you i'd tell you what it is and here it is there's several concepts uh the two main ones well maybe three um is these are troughs uh, a curved reflective system those are heliostats or mirrors that reflect the sunlight onto a central tube in which a, a heat transfer of fluid flows and the the sun w- Heats up that fluid and use that fluid just like as a heat source. So it's like you could either be burning biomass coal or natural gas. It's the same kind of a, a cycle. Uh, you know, it's a thermodynamic cycle. You turn a turbine, it turns a generator, and you have uh, alternating electricity. And the utilities like it because it's something they know uh, how to deal with. They, that rotating machinery, they, they got it. They know how to live with it, make it work. And so that's a popular one, and it is the most cost-effective uh, Concentrating solar power system out there, uh, are, yeah. Today, there's the power tower, which uh, is there's a few demos around, but there's there's not happening much. And then something called dish Stirling, which uh, is is not really uh, competitive yet. And then these are concentrating uh, concentrating the sunlight onto photovoltaic panels, so it's uh, concentrating photovoltaics. It's called, and they track this, and these track the sun, so that so they maximize uh, the collection of sun. Okay. Lynn says I don't have much time left, so we're going to skip a couple. Uh, so with with, with photovoltaics, there's several. I like to look at them as in in several generations. First generation is what we have today. About 80, 85 percent of what you can buy PV panels today are crystalline of one kind or another, poly, uh, polycrystalline or single crystalline, uh, and they're you know somewhere between 15 uh, maybe maybe 20% efficient, and they're kind of, kind of hanging up there. Uh, the uh, second generation is thin films of various kinds. It could be thin film silicon. Uh, there's copper, indium, diselenide, cadmium telluride or organics, and then the future are Gen 3, uh, and I'll show a slide on that to, to help understand what that is. Just to give you an idea of what we mean by thin film, to, for, for reference, this is the thickness of a hair, human hair, the round circle here. That's how thick a human hair is. This, the silicon wafers are, eh, what, two, two, three times more thick, thicker than a human hair. So they're still pretty thin. But these other materials we're trying to develop are very, very thin. So the idea is high-performance materials, very thin, hopefully can... Uh, manufacturing very easily by spraying them on or dep- uh, deposition. And ultimately, and, and some of these are performing really well, cadmium telluride and, and the uh, copper indium diselenide type materials uh, are, are up in the uh, 15 to 20% range. Uh, and uh, some of the w- more challenging ones are like the dye, which uh, is sort of like t- using saran wrap and using that as a photovoltaic panel. The only problem with that is it's not sensitive to sunlight, so you can try various things like uh, dye. And then revolutionary, this is still very speculative, but um, there's a theoretical limit in, in round numbers of, of around 32, 33% for single junctions. But there's various concepts, um, multiple excitons, hot carriers, uh, and then multi-junctions. And we do have multi-junction uh, cells uh, that can we 've exceeded forty percent efficiency on that, so instead of about twenty or below twenty we 're at, at greater than forty it 's just more expensive to make those, but every communication satellite that flies today has that kind of ma- material in it, and these others depend on uh, exploiting uh, nanomaterials. I think i 'm going to skip geothermal, and if you want to ask me questions, somebody really wants to know about it. Biomass power is there today. There's not a lot of new technology that's being developed there. Uh, uh, I'll come back to that in a second. Smart grid is something that's uh, being developed. There's pilots of that, and the idea is to take advantage of the various distributed types of generation, uh, solar panels, uh, wind farms, integrate them more seamlessly into the grid, but also monitor and control per potentially although there 's issues with that from some people 's point of view uh, when, day time use and and that sort of thing, turn your air conditioner off if they have a pro- they need power at that point okay, I want to talk about i want to spend enough time on biofuels um, up to this point i 've talked about electricity, so virtually all the renewable technologies more readily take make uh, electricity. one advantage of solar and wind is that there's no fuel cost. There's capital cost of building the equipment, putting it in place. You may have to maintain some of it, so there's operating and maintenance costs, but you, you don't have to worry about paying a dollar more a gallon for sunlight or wind. So there's a, there's a steadiness and a comfort in that. But we have all of this need for, for transportation somehow, and um, biomass is the one area uh, that can do that, and it can do it, I'm going to, okay, bio, here for the chemists, I'm going to give you chemistry for just a second, there you are, that's what biomass looks like, it's got three components, uh, it's got lignin, hemicellulose, and cellulose, uh, the the, the cellulose part of it are, are relatively easy to deal with, lignin chemistry is m- much less understood, but there's a, n- a big opportunity there, because you can see 15 to 25 percent of biomass, but what we're moving toward is a biorefinery, similar to just think about a petroleum refinery. Crude oil in, many products out. You can do the same thing with biomass. We haven't managed to get there yet, but in principle you can. Any, a variety of biomass materials can be fed into, and there's I, we show, what, six options there. And then out the other end you can get all kinds of things, uh, ethanol, electricity, heat, plastic, solvents, paints, dyes, etc. And uh, we're, the programs are moving toward that, but it, it's a ways off. First generation is corn ethanol. Uh, corn ethanol is topping out, I believe. Uh, you, there'll be somebody might argue with me on that, but we'll, over, we'll, we'll be topping out. And what we're moving toward is cellulosic ethanol. So corn, the corn stalks, the corn cobs, wheat straw, uh, switchgrass that can be grown for crops and can be done—you can do the same thing. And there's a few pilot plants out there doing that. Uh, the ones, the areas I'm most excited about are what we call um, third and fourth generations, drop in fuels. Fuels that can be integrated well into a petroleum refinery, either to the refinery or at the end, blended with gasoline. Uh, yes, they do blend uh, ethanol with gasoline, but the petroleum, frankly, petroleum folks don't like it because it, um, it's not compatible with their distribution system. Uh, it gets added after their product, and, in fact, it displaces their, their fuel. So if we can get something that integrates and it can be part of existing petroleum industry, I think it would be a lot, uh, lot more receptive. And then the other one is there's also – so that's the gasoline side of it. The diesel side, which, of which we have a substantial need, at, at least in our current uh, infrastructure, particularly for jet fuel, for example, um, algae. And algae are single-celled plants. They grow in aquatic environment. You need water. So there's the downside. You need to have water. But they'll grow in saline water. They'll grow in brackish water. They'll grow in uh, wastewater. And, and some of them can't even be used to clean up water. And uh, so some of these species of algae will accumulate, say, 20 30 50% of their body weight of oil, like, a, like a, um, soybean oil. And then that can be esterified. Uh, into a biodiesel, which has, is substantially similar, or it can be—you uh, can actually take it on to a, a jet fuel kind of fuel. So that's uh, a longer-term proposition. It's not quite ready for prime time at this point. And if you ask me how long it'll be, I don't know—ten years maybe, uh, it, on a good day. I do want to say just a little bit about hydrogen. Um, hydrogen doesn't exist in nature as 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 the hydrogen molecule. It's in coal, uh, petroleum, natural gas. It's in water. It's in biomass, and you can then and it takes energy to access it as hydrogen. But any of these sources that I just added on there—sunlight, uh, wind, etc.—can be used as that source of energy, and you can e- use it to either split water itself and make hydrogen, or break down uh, the longer chain molecules, either like biomass molecules or the the hydrocarbon. Uh, the fossil fuel molecules. And once you've got hydrogen then, and if you can store it, and you have to, uh, then you can be, use it very efficiently in a fuel cell. You can also burn it, but uh, it's, uh, if you need it for, for heat purposes. But a fuel cell, and then fuel cells can be put in vehicles and they can be put in homes to be your source of electricity. Now, there's a lot of challenges to that. And when, uh, first of all, the front end is, is efficient ways to split water. Uh, and there's uh, things like photoelectrochemical s- systems. And we can do it in the laboratory, but the lifetime of the systems are way too short. Uh, storage of hydrogen is still a challenge. You can put them in uh, heavy, uh, high-pressure tanks. Uh, there's been some work with nar- uh, carbon nanotubes to, to use uh, for hydrogen storage. And then fuel cells still, uh, while they have potential to be very efficient, they can, um, well, there's the algae, oh, and there's also photo um, the other way to produce it is with algae. Algae will not only make oil; some other species will make hydrogen. As a matter of fact, so that's another option on that. Uh, I want to say a couple words on sustainable transportation, and I think Lynn's going to kick me off stage so she can have some questions. That. So here's, we're on the left side today. Conventional vehicles, corn ethanol is being put into gasoline. Uh, Biodiesel is being put in uh, for diesel vehicles. There's some natural gas. We're transitioning over here. There's some, as you know, hybrid vehicles. I own one, I know a lot of people do. I'm a big fan of hybrid vehicles. We will start to develop cellulosic ethanol and other drop-in kind of fuels. And the one that uh, I have put a lot of great hope in is in the near term, relatively near term is this plug in hybrid, and what that will help do is transition more and more of our transportation onto the electric utility system instead of the um, petroleum world now that 's a good news bad news, but like I said earlier there 's a lot of ways we can that from renewables you can produce electricity so let 's take advantage of that let 's start to unburden our transportation system by going to a plug-in hybrid. Uh, I won't just. If you don't know what it is, maybe somebody can ask me. But uh, and then further down the road would be the hyd- uh, a hydrogen vehicle uh, with that's driven by a fuel cell uh, motive force. Okay, this will be my last slide, then. So there are a number of breakthrough technologies. I know these are at relatively high level, but these are areas that that I think are really key, really important to our success as we move toward. Uh, development of, uh, of in the energy business, I guess. Nanoscience, it's a lot of special properties nanomaterials have. And if we can learn to take advantage of those, it's not necessarily always easy and trivial, but uh, that I think that will help us with some of the breakthroughs. Biotechnology still remains as, as an area. Algae I mentioned several times, uh, for example. I also think we need to be looking at hybrid biological physical systems, marry them up, take advantages of of put them in working in combination, taking advantages of, of both of their capabilities. Computational science is a powerful tool more and more we 're able to simulate and and do run experiments without actually having to do the experiment uh, after you 've simulated a while. you always need to eventually validate by actual experiments, but you can it's a lot cheaper to run a, com- a computer program for hours and hours than it is than to put uh, t- folks in the lab uh, doing, doing test tube experiments, et cetera. Systems integration, more and more, we've got to integrate everything. Uh, you know, transportation with electric system, the smart grid is, is, is part of that idea. And then I haven't said much about it, uh, but part of the secret to a plug-in hybrid is a better store- battery. If we had a battery that was about two times better in performance right now, a plug-in hybrids would really, really take off, I believe. And so we, we, and, and this has been a neglected area. There's not been until recently, the Department of Energy is now starting to put more and more funds into that area, fortunately, but we need a lot of innovation, we need some creative people working there. And Lynn, I will stop and let you uh, see if we have anybody have questions. Thank you very much. appreciate it. <laughs> Questions. I see one here, and then back there. Second. Yes. Yes. Do photovoltaics increase the invulnerability of a system? Delivering the in the vulnerability of a system. Yes. Does it increase the invulnerability of a system? Oh, invulnerability. Right. I, I got to say this the, the right way. <laughs> in vulnerability. does it does it aid in uh, moderating the vulnerability of a system? There you, there we go. In principle, it does uh, be, uh, because you know when the sun's going to shine. What what would really help it it be a, a winner is to have a better energy storage, have have ways to store it, and that uh, the 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 only the, one of the downsides of of photovoltaics is. Uh, the, the peak load I had a slide on, but I, I skipped it. The peak load of the electric system uh, keeps going after the sun goes down, in other words it's not the, the sun helps solar helps for a while during the peak peak of the day, but it stays hot, everybody comes home, start cooking, and so we need to be able to extend the time that the solar electricity is uh, available to the electric grid by a few hours, like five hours. If you could do it four or five hours, then it could really be a, a key uh, aid. And what it does, it shaves that big peak off during the summer summer peak for the most part. So, but 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 yes, fundamentally it does help. But th- th- it could help more with better storage. yet yeah, and that, that this guy back here. Um, uh, I, the first thing is buy a good caulking gun and, and um, caulk all the little... If, if you ever had a home audit and where they do the IR camera, you learn a lot about your house. And uh, most houses, unless you have a fairly new one and they did a bang-up job, there's a lot of little... Where, where the window sills come together on the inside, there's leaks. And just caulk everything... Uh, make I, I would spend it on on that i 'd spend it on insulation if you don 't have it um, uh, more you know, more efficient appliances potentially depending on the age you, you in a you in a well five thousand dollars doesn 't get get you very far with a new vehi- with a vehicle then you can 't buy very much solar panels you need you need to spend twenty thousand uh, for solar panels to really make it worthwhile probably to, at least and it depends on where you are if you have a a uh, tax incentive. Uh, uh, well, there is a federal tax incentive which helps. So, you could spend twenty-five thousand or twenty thousand dollars, but not five. It won't. It won't work. I was going to go here. Well, you you still have to go to hydrogen to go to to uh, no, it, it's a direct, direct. Yeah, I know there's direct uh, methanol fuel cells. Methanol. Uh, sure, it gives off some CO2, but it doesn't uh, uh, because the efficiency of the fuel cell gives off a whole lot less than our heating that we're using very comfortably. Yeah, uh, to do that, you have to have a methanol uh, produce. You have to generate methanol somehow, and the, one of the problems with with methanol, it has about half the energy content of gasoline. Ethanol has a disadvantage of being about having about two thirds the uh, energy density of, of gasoline so you have you 'd have to have a tank you know, for equivalent range in principle you 'd have to have a tank probably twice the size of if you 're talking about a, a vehicle uh, of, uh, maybe two times you might get two times i, I, I don 't think we' get you know, most people don 't understand that or know that a traditional automobile engine is a very inefficient device. It's about 20% efficient on a good day. Yeah. And and he's talking about probably 50% ballpark. Huh? Right. No, I understand. Yeah. Um, where do I go next? I, I see a vigorous hand in the back. So, sorry, you weren't vigorous enough. Well, uh, there's been talk about that, microwave it down, or about uh, it. it I, I don't think it turns out to be very practical. And if you have a big high energy beam coming down, there's always the fear that it, what, what if you miss the target? Yeah. One more question. Oh, okay, I'll go here. work on other ways to get energy there, or is there a better engine to put in the vehicle? Um, which, which would be the most efficient way of getting our, to our transportation? Well, yeah, I didn't say it as I was talking about the plug-in hybrid, but it is a more, it's more efficient. It, it sort of mirrors the comment about the fuel cell. Uh, uh, you know, you produce electricity from, a, from, a, from some means, uh, if it's from renewables, you, you know the efficiency is not nearly as important as the cost, really, ultimately. Um, and then once you've stored it, I mean, the, the round the round trip with a battery is, is is high efficiency, and the round and the efficiency of electric motor is up in the ninety percent range. So uh, you, my, our plug-in hybrid advocates will argue that you may gain a factor of three. I guess we're talking the same thing, aren't we? <laughs> Yeah, ultimately factor, basically factor three, more efficient use of basic energy.